welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Hi, welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Today, my guest is Kevin Antcliffe, aerospace engineer, formerly of NASA, and now with X-Wing, an autonomous aviation startup that's crucial to key aspects of the future of aviation. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks, Michael. Good to be here. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about regional air mobility and related subjects. And the reason for that is because Kevin was the lead author and organizer of a massive and very interesting NASA report on one of the key aspects of the future of aviation, specifically the impact of electrification of aviation and the use of massive numbers of spare airports that aren't currently used. So it's really interesting. But let's start with who the heck Kevin is. So Kevin, why don't you start with, you're an aerospace engineer and you know you, you seem to be in an early passion. Tell us how you arrived at this space and go through your positions with NASA and stuff. Sure. So um, yeah, I, I grew up in uh, Southeast Virginia, close to several Air Force bases. So consistently saw F-16s, F-18s flying overhead. Uh, my dad also uh, had a 40-year career at NASA. So I, I grew up at the playground at NASA and uh, uh, was essentially always, always around uh, great advances in science and technology from a young age. And so uh, just fascinated with flight in general and saw all of these massive fighter jets and didn't understand how large metal objects flew through the sky. And so I wanted to understand that. And I went to Virginia Tech and got my bachelor's and master's there and went for my PhD for a couple of years, finished all the coursework. And then I just, at the time, I was also working for NASA and the projects that I was working on there were much more exciting than trying to write a really, really, really long paper. And so I, I just decided, okay, I'd, I'd much rather work on these really interesting uh, research projects that have benefit to the future of aviation rather than write a really, really long paper that no one will read. So that, that's what I ended up doing. I, I kind of dropped out of the PhD, got a full-time position at NASA and worked there in total for about 12 years. Uh, I started as a, as a Lars intern which is uh, Langley Aerospace Research Summer Scholars. And I did that for about four years, worked on one of the first uh, EV toll concepts, which was the Puffin, and then worked on uh, the Zip Aircraft Aviation Study, which was essentially looking at Zip cars and how that could translate to aviation. Uh, and one of the, if you're familiar with the X-57, which is one of NASA's uh, current uh, distributed electric propulsion X-planes, one of the predecessors to that was in that ZIP aviation study. Then I was in, you know, graduate research assistant working on my master's. And then, yeah, as I, as I kind of transitioned into the full-time role, uh, I was the lead designer on several unconventional concepts that took advantage of the benefits of electric propulsion, both conventional takeoff and landing and vertical takeoff and landing. I was kind of uh, given the opportunity based on uh, the group of people that I was working with at the time to get on the ground floor of, of UAM as it was really starting to, to kick off. 
urban air years. mobility for the folks who, um, you know, don't, aren't that. as deeply into the space as Kevin and I are. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, there was a, a bunch of Mar Mark Moore uh, is, is someone who kind of led that effort and eventually moved over to Uber Elevate to kick that off. Nick Bohr, Michael Patterson, Paul Rothar, Bill Fredericks, Ken Goodrich. It was kind of a, a small team of, of seven of us that were really focused on this on-demand mobility concept. And um, so, you know, one of my earliest publications there at NASA was cited in the Uber Elevate white paper that really kickstarted that industry and, uh, you know, served on several center and agency tiger teams as a subject matter expert in autonomy and electric propulsion and, uh, you know, served as the co-PI of the Heather Cast project, which was focused on high efficiency electrified aircraft thermal research. Uh, but all of that to say, I, I did a bunch of different things throughout uh, my, my 12 years there. But then, you know, kind of what we're talking about now and something I'm probably most proud of is what we'll focus on today, which is kind of the leading the development of a regional mobility white paper, which is, is something that, you know, throughout the time of on-demand mobility, we worked on and, and thought about, and it was always a market that was of interest, but it was really just this past year that I felt like that vision really needed to be pulled forward. Cool. Yeah. The, um, there's a bit of an alphabet soup of competing visions in there. There's AAM, UAM, and RAM. You know, because you're actually an expert who's worked in all three of those spaces or two of those spaces or however you define it, what I'd really like for you to, for the audience is to define each of those and say, what's the overlap? How do you define the boundaries between them? Because I, th I think you've seen my Venn diagram where I attempt to articulate that which I thought was pretty useful, but you might disagree with it and feel free to disagree. So, you know, how do you define the boundaries? What's in which pieces? Uh, yeah, and, yeah, think... and do remember to spell out the words at least once. <laughs> Thank you. That is, that is something that, uh, that we struggle with in this industry for sure is far too many acronyms. Uh, but, but yes, I think, I think your Venn diagram was, was pretty, uh, pretty accurate. I think uh, essentially when I think of advanced air mobility, I think of uh, the combination of urban air mobility and regional air mobility. And so urban air mobility is focused around in, you know, as I mentioned, really took off with Uber Elevate and I can, I can go into the background there if you're, if you're interested, but essentially urban air mobility is focused on vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. And you know, both of these, both urban and regional is looking at the convergence of electric propulsion and autonomous technologies primarily, and how that transforms aviation and what that means for the, the future and emerging markets in aviation. And so advanced air mobility is, is simply looking at a broader scope of uh, urban, regional, regardless of, of the application or, or, um, or what market or, or we're going after, how does the convergence of these technologies really impact the future of aviation? And, and that's really kind of the, the broad A and advanced air mobility <laughs> mission. And I, I think, uh, you know, within urban air mobility, you can, you also see people including drones and UAS and, and things of that nature. Uh, while in regional air mobility, you're, typically looking at conventional takeoff and landing aircraft. And I know there's a blurry line, there's, there's short takeoff and landing, uh, which kind of blurs a line of what's urban, what's regional. But in general, I like to think of 
you know, for the for regional mobility, we set the line as as sea tall, which obviously allows for a longer range. If you're taking off conventionally, you're not using as much sea tall, C T O L, conventional takeoff and landing for anybody who's not. In the nerd space. In the nerd space, that's right. And then VTOL, V vertical takeoff and landing, uh, which obviously you're, you're going to be using a lot of energy to take off vertically, and thus you, you'll get a much shorter range if you're if you're using the same energy system. And so and so that's that's really how how I differentiate UAM and regional mobility and AAM kind of being the umbrella over the both of them. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll put a little more colorful spin on it. Uh, urban air mobility is the Jetsons envi- envisioned future. And I, I'm on record as saying is it's dumb as a box of hammers. Outside, you know, um, having lived in Sao Paulo, which had more private helicopters than any city in the world at the time. And that was only 700. Urban air mobility is a tiny edge condition for rich people if it ever emerges. And I really doubt it's ever going to emerge because it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, flying massive rotorcraft, electric rotorcraft over schoolyards. There's just going to be some problems there. And landing short takeoff and landing triplanes and biplanes in soccer fields, also not going to be something that actually occurs in urban areas. So, you know, I'm on record as saying, guys, there's a reason you lost $16 billion on SPACs in that space in 2021. And and it's because you have no business case. And you don't have any intellectual capital that makes any sense. And I've gotten a lot of flack for that, understandably. Um, the anti-aircraft guns have come out a couple of times, but I've had really great conversations with people about that. And, you know, you are inside the industry. You're part of the you know lineup that led to UAM and know all those people. So you have to be more circumspect, but I don't. I, I'm, I'm an outsider in that regard. Now, so that's the Jetsons is urban air mobility. Regional air mobility, the way I describe it is, Planes that look like planes, they have fixed wings, but they just take off from airports the same way that planes do. And we have lots of airports, you know, so that's one of the things that I think we want to start leaning into is, you know, the initiation of the RAM report. You know, there's some key insights that led you to form that organization and you got a whole bunch of people together. So why don't you start talking just about the regional air mobility report from NASA, which I encourage people to Google and read. It's really worth a read. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So the, the initiation of the RAM report. Uh, so I was, I was working at the time on several different uh, aircraft, uh, both urban air mobility and uh, kind of longer range uh, and, and larger, larger payload uh, aircraft. Uh, and, and essentially, and I guess we, we might want to backtrack a bit on just how did, how did we get here, right? So I, I think I, I mentioned early on, I was on working on the Puffin concept, which is one of the, the first EV tolls. Uh, and there was- uh, EV you know, toll, electric vertical takeoff and landing for the people not in the nerd space. But I, I, need, uh, to, I need to do better at that. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, no worries. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have the same problem. It's, I, I keep getting slapped by it for it. So I have TLAs for TLAs. So EVTOL, electric vertical takeoff and landing. Okay. So essentially back in the early 2000s, there was a strong movement toward uh, essentially looking at very light jets. And there was something called the Small Aircraft Transportation System or SATS that was envisioned by somebody by the name of Bruce Holmes. 
Uh, there was also the Agate program, which was the Advanced General Aviation Transport Exploration Program, maybe if I got that right. And essentially a lot of air taxis that were starting to, to pop up using uh, Cirrus aircraft and, and uh, you know, small four or five passenger aircraft and evaluating the potential of that as an opportunity. And this was, you know, this was pre-iPhone. This was pre uh, when electric propulsion or autonomous systems would have been even considered for an aircraft. And this was early 2000s and it, it, uh, it was, it worked. It was uh, profitable at a point. And then there was the, the stock market crash in 2008 uh, that essentially sent, sent a lot of those companies back home. And so, so uh, hey, can we just spend a half a, a half a minute on Cirrus? Sure. Because they're kind of an interesting firm because they emerged after the global liability change. You know, so one of the things I've discovered and, you know, digging back into the aerospace industry as, you know, as Kevin did, I grew up on Air Force bases. So F-18s and F-16s were part of my daily viewing. The way other people looked at birds, I looked at jets, uh, very noisy ones. Um, and uh, my dad actually ran air traffic control for the fighters that scrambled, not, he ran maintenance of the computer systems for the fighters that scrambled over the pole to intercept Russian bombers um, in North Bay, Ontario. So I'm second generation computer nerd too. <laughs> You're second generation NASA. But one of the things I discovered is that a lot of the planes that we look at, the fixed wing, smaller planes that we look at are very old. The, the Havilands and the Beavers and stuff like that. And that's because there was this full, as I understand it, a full lifetime airframe liability. If a plane was still flying, an airframe was still flying 60 years after manufacturing and it crashed, the manufacturer could be liable for losses associated with that, including loss of life. And so at a certain point, everybody in North America, which is where most of these planes were being built, stopped building them because it was just too fiscally risky. And then there's a process in around 1980 that changed the regulations so that it wasn't lifetime liability for the airframe. And, you know, some basically they're just slowly starting to fill the gap. And Cirrus was one of the first ones out of the gate in 84 to actually say, we can get back into this market and start doing stuff. And so when you mentioned Cirrus, I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Cause they were, they got it and they were movers at that point. And now I think they're one of the bigger manufacturers in that, you know, small fixed wing turboprop space. And you're nodding, which is, you know, something that won't come across on the podcast. So yes, they <laughs> are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they have, they've definitely been incredibly innovative leading general aviation aircraft uh, by far in, in orders and, and how much are, are being built at this point. And really uh, from a customer perspective, they've, they've really enhanced the experience tremendously from, I mean, it, it would be easy to do, right? Because they're, they're newer, but you know, they, they've really thought about the customer. They've got full parachutes, uh, full aircraft parachutes on their, on their aircraft to ensure that, you know, any loss of engine, you can pop your parachute and the entire aircraft uh, will float down very gently to the ground. So it's, you know, thinking about the customer, thinking about what demands they would have and what, what they would want uh, and, and building a really sleek aircraft uh, that's incredibly aerodynamically efficient. So they, they've done an incredible job and, and the, how much uh, essentially 
uh, how they're leading in that space shows that. Yeah. And it is interesting because, you know, one of the things you just mentioned, the you know, passenger jets, 80 plus passenger jets don't have parachutes. What they do have is multiple engines and they have the NASA database of safety and collateral <laughs> that has been, and small planes. I, Kevin, do you know this offhand? What's the bottom clip point for uh, stuff where aviation incidents end up in the NASA database? I do not. I do not know that offhand. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question that I've been kind of poking at and thinking it would be interesting to know because what some people don't know is that a passenger aviation by passenger mile is by far the safest form of transportation in the world. You know, if you, it's like take a billion miles of tra people traveling and jet aircraft and turboprop, larger turboprop aircraft, they just don't fall into the sky and kill people very often. And a lot of that comes back to some far-sighted person in the history of NASA saying, we're going to collect every incident and we're going to make that available publicly, globally. And it's an amazing asset and something that I just keep saying, NASA is a really awesome organization. So great that your dad was there. Great that you had your experience there. And, you know, it keeps limping along. <laughs> I hope that I it can. Yeah. So anyway, the Cirrus is interesting because it's a innovator that came after a regulatory transformation that doesn't seem to have been duplicated by other major aerospace vendors who've instead gone to larger scale turbofan long distance jets, especially the bigger and more efficient turbofans. And so there's kind of this, the entire industry of aviation over the past 40 years has shifted away from what it used to be, which was smaller hops between regional airports. And so regional air mobility is an articulation in many ways of return to the way that we used to fly. Smaller planes between regional airports, not hub and spoke. And, you know, it's just kind of an interesting return to the past, but a return to the past that is instigated by something. And we'll get to that in a minute. I'm going to leave that as a foreshadowing thing to make people curious as a intentional device to get them to keep listening. <laughs> So the RAM report, you know, this is in context of a transformational technology, maybe changing things up. And so you started the RAM report. Tell, tell us about, you know, how you kicked that RAM report off and how the, hey, it got a lot of collaborators from across the industry. So talk about that. Yeah. So, so essentially uh, based on what we, what we had seen in the early 2000s, right. With, with uh, SATs and agate that I mentioned earlier, and uh, there's just been, there was continual work at NASA focused on personal air vehicles. There was a personal air vehicle exploration program. There was the green aviation uh, challenge that was co-sponsored with Google or the, the green, green flight challenge, sorry, early 2000s. And essentially that focus on electric propulsion and autonomous systems and how the convergence of those two can generate a new market uh, was what we called on-demand mobility at the time. So this is a predecessor to advanced air mobility, uh, which was essentially looking at both uh, regional mobility and urban air mobility and saying, these are, these are areas that we need to focus our efforts on moving forward. And in 2015, 2016 timeframe, we held some on-demand mobility workshops where 120 plus organizations came and, and we had discussions on with the FAA, NASA on how do we how do we engage, how do we bring this mission forward? And you know, the, the Jobies of the world, the Volocopters of the world, 
were there from the urban air mobility space, as as well as the the Cape Airs and the aviation and Zunum at the time uh, was was all there, uh, having this conversation about how what does the future of aviation look like, and from that is is what really kicked off the Uber Elevate white paper. You know, Mark Mark Moore left NASA to go join Uber, and and really kicked that off. And, you know, now there's 600 plus companies working in UAM. And, you know, I was, I was sitting at NASA saying there was, there was something else <laughs> that we were talking about that, you know, I felt was incredibly pragmatic, had an incredibly beneficial opportunity for the future of aviation. And I really wanted people to know about it. And, and it was... Um, I'm just going to interject. It actually has a real world business case. Exactly. And I, I think it's I think it's just a, an incredibly pragmatic approach. And I, I think it's and so essentially I was I was looking at it from that lens and I was as I as I often do, talking talking to many of my colleagues and friends and, and two of them come to mind. Uh, Nick Borer and Michael Patterson are are two uh, researchers at, at NASA Langley uh, and colleagues, friends of mine uh, that uh, really were often the sounding board for my frustrations. Uh, <laughs> we, we all need a friend like that. But, uh, you know, essentially the three of us were, were becoming in, increasingly frustrated that RAM had not been promoted and given the same vision that UAM had been provided through Uber. And we all strongly believe that RAM provided that in- incredible opportunity to revitalize existing airport infrastructure and use the same convergence of electric propulsion and autonomous technologies that UAM or urban air mobility was touting to dramatically change the way that we move regionally. And so we were, we were beginning to see several companies starting to move into this space and we wanted to support them. We wanted to agree with them. We wanted to appreciate and acknowledge their, their pragmatism and common interest in the future of, of regional mobility. And so I think that was, that's kind of how we, how we kicked it off. And there was, there were a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of collaborators on that report, and that's there's kind of a lot of interesting stories and how that came to be. But you know, it was it was one of the most exciting projects that I've been a part of because of all of these passionate people that that all, that all agreed with us, and I, I really like when people agree with me, uh, as most <laughs> people do. And so essentially, I just I. I I wanted to make it happen and, and I, and it it wasn't going to get done if I didn't go and do it. And so I, I didn't have a charge code, a charge code or a, a formal ask to go and do it. I just uh, felt like it really needed to be written and it needed uh, consensus from everyone in the community at the time. So I just, I just went and did it well. And, and of course it's really nice. If, if an aerospace engineer from NASA calls you up and says, Hey, you know, I'm putting on a show. Do you want to come and be part of it? That's a really great place to stand. You know, it's, it's like I could call, put out a call for collaborators, but without that NASA at the end, it just doesn't get as much attention. Yeah, that, that, uh, that brand definitely, definitely helps. There, there's no doubt about it. Um, and I guess I didn't just go out and do it. I, I did talk to my legal team and I talked to my <laughs> STI program manager to make sure that you know, I wouldn't get fired or sued if I, if I went on to do that. <laughs> so luckily everyone at, at NASA was incredibly supportive and saw the benefit in producing it. And, you know, I think the first meeting I had with everyone was 
titled Unconventional Collaboration to Push Ram Forward or, or something like that because there was no Space Act agreements or formal partnerships or anything like that. And so I had, I had no clue who was really going to show up and who would actually contribute. But luckily, almost every single first layer of contact that I reached out to had another layer of context that, that they thought would want to be involved. And, you know, it went at least two or three layers before we ended up with our, our final group of contributors. And these, these contributors were incredible too. I essentially put an executive summary and a list of potential sections beneath it with some ideas, but, you know, they, they filled in the rest of it. And I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it was far too long <laughs> and far too technical to, to publish. And so this is a great opportunity for a shout out to Erin uh, Sparadino, who was, uh, she works for True Story Consulting. Uh, she was the technical editor uh, that we used for this, this project. And she was just incredible because we had <laughs> this massive amount of work uh, to, to bring this down to the, the 20 pages that we ended up with. And, um, you know, there was, there was no way it was going to be coherent, uh, not too technical jargony uh, to, to really put out for the general public. So that was a, a huge help. Yeah, I'm just looking at the list of cl- uh, collaborators there. But so let's, let's, you know, talk about this a little bit. Like the, um, a bunch of this, you talked about reusing airports or expanding the use of airports. So let's talk about the statistics associated with this, because there's a bunch of really interesting numbers associated with regional air mobility and current air travel that you draw out. So you know, why don't you talk about you know, where the passenger flights occur now and how many airports are and stuff like that, because I think it's really interesting and it gives a real sense of the business opportunity in a different way. Yeah, at least in the U.S., 0.6% of U.S. airports currently support 70% of all domestic air travel. You might think, okay, so there's 30%. That's even the distributed over the rest of the, you know, 99.4%. Not exactly. It's it's like 2% handles 96%, right? So 2% of those airports handle 96% of traffic. So essentially, if you're traveling today in the U.S., you're going to stop by one of these major hubs. Uh, and that's that has a lot of negative effects uh, that, that we see when we go and visit the airport and we have to get there two hours early and we've got all of these connections and we have all of these uh, issues from trying to aggregate all of the passenger demand into these large hubs. So let's, and, tra- let's uh, translate that into some numbers because how many airports are there in the United States? So there are uh, over 5,000 airports in the United States uh, and, you know, the, there's uh, the MPIAS National Plan for Integrated Airport Systems that the FAA Federal Airport Federal Aviation Administration for the for the uh, but essentially in that document it lays out uh, what each of all of the airports in our system what their role is and so there's a large hub a medium hub a small hub and primary, non-primary, essentially trying to categorize the airports into different sections. And essentially that 0.6% that handles 70% of the top 30 airports in the United States out of the 5,000 that are, that are available for public use, right? There's another 12,000, something like that, uh, 9,000, essentially a, a lot more, 12,000, I think, other airports that are for private use as well. So a total of, you know, well over 10, 15,000 airports. And uh, I'll, I'll just um, 
compare and contrast, there's another set of thousands of airports in Europe. Every developed country has lots and lots of airstrips and yeah. they're underutilized. Yeah. Now, Kevin, I think well, the first time you and I talked, there was a, a reference to a federal U.S. program to keep airports going. If if I, if it was you that shared that with me, I, I uh, think so. I, I I think I mean you may be referencing. So there was this uh, uh, essentially this plan that was put forward in 1946, shortly after World War II, that said all of these airports should be essentially should have acts or yeah should be within 20 minutes of of you know you, anybody in the United States should be within 20 minutes of any given airport. Uh, you know, they should have their local airport that they can go and visit and use for transportation. That was spelled out in 1946 and has continued in every, that's the National Plan for Integrated Airport Service now is what it's called. I'm probably butchering that, but MPIAS. But essentially with that comes uh, airport improvement, uh, airport improvement program funds, which gives out $3.2 billion dollars in annual grant funding to all of these local airports that they just, uh, they apply for to get those grants. And within that, there's also a voluntary airport low emissions program or VAIL, everything's an acronym here today, uh, V-A-L-E funding that can be used for, uh, you know, solar, renewable, anything that's low emissions. Uh, so that that is is another opportunity as well. But significant amount of funding going into these airports and they're put there. They were put there for transportation and it's continued to say, hey, we're supposed to be using these for transportation. And uh, as you mentioned in Europe, there's there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. And a lot of people have shown interest uh, from across Europe and in, in utilizing regional mobility there as well. And uh, let, let's just draw, draw the threads together. So. The, I've done a lot of math on this and I've published a lot on this and I've gotten a lot of people who agree and disagree with me. But I think that you know, by 2100, we're gonna be seeing a dominantly electrified aviation industry. You know, my projection through that uh, you know, decade by decade indicates that sustainable aviation fuels, specifically biofuels, will dominate a lot of it as we displace uh, fossil fuel-based kerosenes, Jet A1 and Jet B and stuff like that. and then, you know, as that's good, but this still comes with nitrous oxide emissions, it still comes with contrails. So as we move forward through increases and innovations in battery density, battery chemistry, uh, electronics management, you know, airframes that are improved from aerodynamic and aviation perspective for electric drivetrains and innovations in the propulsion systems themselves for purely electric propulsion systems, we're gonna get to the point around 2060, my projection, we're going to be able to do, you know, international flights with a fully battery electric solution. And then over the next 40 years after that, kind of displaces all the SAF biofuels segment. And this is a big error bars projection on my part. But we start now. And starting now, we're 260 you know, watt hours per kilogram of battery energy density. And that's a really important number, 260 watt hours for like, Tesla grade lithium ion batteries. And that's at the battery pack level. So you get a bunch of them together. And the reason that's important is because flying takes a lot of energy. <laughs> um, and part of the reason I think the UAM space is kind of a, if it ever has a business case, it'll be 30 years from now. The 
going straight up and beating the air into submission with a rotorcraft is vastly energy intensive. So conventional takeoff and landing, just basically you kind of accelerate slowly down a runway and then the aerodynamics kick into place and you lift gently off the ground and you climb slowly and you do that where you're not going to run into something a block away. You know, you don't need short takeoff and landing for this. So right now we have a moment in time when electric battery energy densities are suitable for small airports and small planes. And guess what? Regional air mobility, we've got in the United States, as, as Kevin has pointed out, 5,000 maintained airports, as opposed to the 12,000 landing strips that are lying around the place that are completely suitable for electric conventional takeoff and landing airplanes. So that's the intersectionality, right? You've got, I've got this maintained set of physical assets that are in registered and federal programs and have aviation flying in and out of them all the time, smaller planes. And you have a moment in time where electric aviation, electric drivetrains are very suitable for small planes. You know, Hart Aerospace in, um, in Scandinavia, I've talked to Anders Forslund there, the CEO and founder, uh, they're building a 19-seater passenger plane because in this entire space is a heavily regulated space for very good reason. 19 is a magic number. <laughs> There's the EASA regulations. Kevin, you actually know what EASA stands for. Uh, do oh, I? oh, no. European Avi you're, you're, yeah, you're, it's the, <laughs> that's, that's one, I, I, I know what EASA is. I'm European Aviation and Space Administration. I have no clue. <laughs> anyway, the EASA regulations, yeah, European Union Aviation Safety Agency. It's the FAA for the EU, the, the Federal Aviation Administration. That's correct. I know <laughs> that one. <laughs> I know. It's, we just kind of say FAA, NASA, and we never think about what the words are anymore. So the EASA regulations basically is a cutoff. Under 20 seats, you are regulated with smaller planes. Over 20 seats, you're regulated with 800 pass plane passenger jets that can fly from LA to Tokyo or LA, you know, all the way to Singapore without stopping. And the regulatory requirements for that bigger planes is massive. Now, the way the ES EASA stuff uh, works is basically it's an end times end problem. And this is actually really interesting. Uh, Kevin, you might actually have some really interesting insights on this. So let's play with this digression a bit. The EASA regulations say you have to test all the intersectional failure conditions in your certification process, which means that if you have a complex jet engine or internal combustion turbofan engine, you actually have to do a lot of big tables of intersectional failure conditions. But if you have an electric motor and an electric battery and a propeller, the N times N is much smaller. So the only thing that's challenging about certification under EASA and FAA regulations for certification of drivetrains and airframes that are electrified is that they're novel. It's actually going to be easier and cheaper to certify in the future, except in the urban air mobility, which adds a bunch of unnecessary complexity to get tilt wings and stuff like that. They just complexify stuff unnecessarily. Kevin doesn't, Kevin knows all these people and he wants to maintain good relationships with them. I don't have that problem. Uh, <laughs> um, so this is kind of the point, right? We've got this 
interesting moment in time where certification is a strong blocker in terms of getting electric aircraft into the air to do cargo and passengers. But that's only because it's novel. It's actually easier to certify them once the path has been approved. So Pipistrel has already gone through certification of two-seater electric airplanes with an electric motor and a standard propeller package, right? And so that's a known path. And the ESA and FAA know how to do that. Um, as we move forward, conventional takeoff and landing airplane certification of airframes is also a very well-known path. You know, and Pipistrel's, you know, as long as the airplane airframe is fairly conventional, which is what Hart Aerospace is doing, they're putting all their novelty into their nacelles. The airframe itself, it looks like it could have been built by any one of six manufacturers in the aerospace industry over the past 30 years. You know, it's, it's modernized and stuff like that, but it's, it's, it's a box hang, hang, hanging under a wing. And so as we move forward into this space, certification is one of the things that's lagging, but we have this moment in time, this decade, the next five years, when it's possible to certify conventional takeoff and landing fully electric airplanes with four to 19 seats and a half ton to two and a half tons of cargo. And we've got a whole bunch of airports that are maintained and federally funded to support that aviation. And we have a whole bunch of aviation flyers like um, Mesa, the United um, Economy Carrier, is the one that signed a deal with uh, Hart Aerospace for 200 planes because they say, we can just dust off all of our routes from 1980. All right. And That's so we've right. got this, you know, we've got a whole bunch of people who know how to fly these routes. We just had a problem. Right. The problem was the turbofans were very expensive to run. And so you need to run them farther in order to, because basically a, a turbofan engine is an amazing thing at 30,000 feet. It's 55% efficient at optimum cruising speed at 30,000 feet. And it's like opening your gas tank and pouring aviation gas on the airport when you're taxiing. <laughs> so the shorter, the, the longer, the greater the percentage of taxiing and the shorter the time you spend in the air, the more it's just like dumping expensive aviation fuel on the runway. So this is all kind of coming together is the way I tell the story in, you know, in the RAM report to say, oh, this changes the economics. And so let's talk about the economics. You, you cite this figure in the report. I, I, I think it's if uh, the cost of operations drops by 40% due to electrification, entirely new business cases open up with regional air mobility. So talk to me about the provenance of that number. How did you guys, where, where did that come from? What's the insights that led to that? It's a very clear and compelling one and I see it, but talk, talk about how that one emerged. Yeah, it's a really, really great study uh, done by a, a colleague of mine or a former colleague of mine, Ty Marion, who wrote this, this report and that was essentially this, this whole project. And I was, I was leading this project at the time. It was, it was called the short haul revitalization study, uh, which was looking at uh, short haul and trying to understand how we can revitalize it. So it's a very good name, but essentially with, for this study, Ty was using this model that was developed by Tony Tranny at Virginia tech Go Hokies. That's where I went to school. But he developed this uh, TSAM, which is the Transportation Systems Analysis Model, 
which looks at and tries to determine passenger demand for, and essentially for this purpose, looking at short haul flights in the US. And so it uses socioeconomic and demographic data to forecast inner city travel behavior. And so, you know, it looks at commercial air, it looks at automobiles, it looks at rail, and, you know, any other new mode of travel that you input into the model with, you know, performance and cost data. And so essentially what, what Ty did was, you know, based on what he input, given, and he, he looked at, uh, essentially looked at different, different payloads, different seats in the aircraft to understand, okay, what, what's the trade-off, what's the right you know, if we're trying to revitalize short haul aviation, what's the right amount of passengers we need to really get the most benefit? And essentially what he saw is, you know, based on different cost reductions in, and this is all available, uh, this report, well, yeah, it's, it's linked in, linked in the RAM report, I guess, but essentially it's interesting to note that, you know, for cost reductions of 40% or more, the seat capacity with the the seat capacity with the maximum OD pair. So origin to destination is, is driven toward very, very small values into the realm of like general aviation or possibly even like personal air vehicles at the time. And so that's like the, like personal, like one person to six person vehicles. Is that what you're saying? Right. Right. Exactly. And so that, that was kind of what, what this report was saying is that, you know, perhaps one day very small, fully automated aircraft may be feasible and operate economically enough to represent a new mobility solution. And based on, you know, based on this analysis, he really saw that, you know, 40%, there was really a, a knee in the curve as mm-hmm. to, you know, if, if you go less than that, or if you go to higher passengers, you start to see, well, yeah, if you get less, if you get reduced cost, reduced cost reduction, less cost reductions, then you see that, you know, as you get to smaller aircraft, it's not as beneficial economically, but as you get to 40%, 50%, it starts to continue to increase as you go smaller in the amount of aircraft, in the amount of passengers that you have and you'll want to see okay if and essentially what this is all saying is if i get the economics down enough it's going to be as cheap as taking my car yep and so i can then go and say okay i'm going to take this plane and go a lot quicker and get to my destination faster than if i were to to just take my car yeah, and I, I'm going to call out Electron Aviation um, in Europe because I've been mean, you know, talking with Mark Henry and De Jong and uh, Joseph Morris. They're the, the founders. And uh, now Electron is exactly in this space. And you know, I, I think, Kevin, you've actually spoken to Joseph at least once. I know they've read, read your report and stuff like that. Their focus is on building a uh, one-pilot, four-passenger electric fixed-wing conventional takeoff and landing plane, exactly in this model, with the thousands of airports that are in Europe, as opposed to the thousands of people, as well as selling the planes in North America and other places where there's airports. And their model, so, you know, in talking with people as we work through it, you got a family of four, and you live in Colorado, and you got a small airport nearby, it's a lot cheaper and a lot faster. It's the same price, and it's a lot faster more direct to fly one of these planes 
than to do something else. And so the SHRT, SHST, short haul revitalization, something, is a study, SHRS. Um, so that one, that's an economic study, correct? Okay, so it's a assuming a rational economic actor is doing it based mostly based upon their perception of the value. Um, right. Does it does it take into account the time value or just the dollar value? Do you know? Yeah, so it it takes into account time definitely, uh, and and tries to assign some sort of cost to that, uh, which is difficult. And we've done that in a lot of we've we've. <laughs> We've contracted out many, 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 many studies over the years, uh, and and that's one of the most difficult things is to is to understand how people value their time and how the how much uh, or how important that is. But essentially, if you if you get the price close enough to where cars are, then then it doesn't necessarily matter. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Walk, 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 walk,